Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. There was a time when the Cleveland Browns were one of, if not the most dominant team in the NFL. Guys like Jim Brown, Otto Graham, Marion Motley, and Leroy Kelly led a Browns rampage over their NFL brethren. And before that, they ruled the short-lived All-America Football Conference. But the glory days for the Browns were quite some time ago. And the last man to lead Cleveland to an NFL championship was Frank Ryan. Today, we'll catch up with that forgotten hero, the man who played quarterback for that 1964 championship team, Frank Ryan. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes, and today, a very special guest, Frank Ryan, the last quarterback to win an NFL championship for the Cleveland Browns. Also joining today's podcast will be Roger Gordon, an author who has written several books about the Browns. Before we get into today's podcast, I hope that everyone had a terrific New Year's celebration. And as always, I want to thank everyone who has and continues to support Sports Forgotten Heroes. If you'd like to show your support, please visit the Sports Forgotten Heroes Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. For as little as $1 a month, your support can go a long way. Follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, check out our page on Facebook, or visit our website SportsFH.com to learn more about the guests who appear on the podcast, the great stars we talk about, and to see who else is scheduled to be featured. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash SportsFH. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to enjoy your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. You get a free Audible book and a 30-day free trial. And it's also another great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, it's hard to believe that once upon a time, the Cleveland Browns are one of the model franchises of the NFL. In fact, from 1950 through 1969, the Browns appeared in 11 championship games and won the title in four of those games. Now, to be fair to the original Cleveland Browns franchise, which, by the way, also won each of the four championship games that were played in the All-America Football Conference, the AAFC, before the Browns joined the NFL, they've actually gone on to win two Super Bowl championships. Remember, the original Browns left Cleveland and moved to Baltimore and became the Ravens in 1996. The Browns, as we know them today, were resurrected in 1999 with new ownership and management. 
However, the NFL let the new Browns retain or keep all of the old Cleveland records. So theoretically, technically, or not technically, depending on how you want to look at it, the current Browns are also the old Browns, only they went on hiatus and did not play in 1996, 1997, or 1998. What a difference management can and did make as the current version of the Cleveland Browns have not made the playoffs since 2002 and their on-the-field performance over the last three years are somewhat legendary for the wrong reasons. No team in NFL history has put together a two- or three-year stretch like the Browns have. It's hard to fathom. But, as I said earlier, there was a time when the Browns were the model franchise. They had guys like Jim Brown. Otto Graham, Leroy Kelly, Lou Groza, and Marion Motley, to just name a few. And then there was Frank Ryan. He was the quarterback for the Browns for a good part of the 1960s and is the last quarterback to lead the Browns to an NFL championship. He did that in 1964. Drafted by the Los Angeles Rams in the fifth round of the 1958 draft out of Rice, being selected at all came as a bit of a surprise to Ryan, who joins us now. I was I was very surprised uh, that I would be even drafted. Um, I was the second string quarterback at Cleveland at, at at Rice. What was it that the Rams saw in you that said this is the guy we want to take? Well, I, I think I could throw the football better than most anybody, you know, and I did play a lot, um, so. Um, I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Had the Rams not drafted you, would you have passed up the NFL if a different team had drafted you because of your academic interests? It was an interesting aspect, and uh, particularly uh, since I was a uh, a second stringer. The first stringer, by the way, was a guy named King Hill, Uh uh, who who was bigger than I uh, by some amount, and uh, a wonderfully nice person um he he i think he graduated maybe not from rice uh you know there are a lot of players that are admitted to rice to play football in those days that and they they didn't really take a course like the rest of us did rice is an extremely tough school sure um in that regard but um but I, I think I liked playing football, mm-hmm. and it, it probably was of interest to me to be to be drafted, even if it's just the fifth round. Was it difficult to play for the Rams and attend classes at the same time? Because didn't you further your academic studies while you were playing for the Rams? Right. Was that a difficult well, thing to do to to learn the Ram <laughs> how to operate the Rams offense and and no, go no, to no. school? No, no, no. I got I got all the football that I could get, uh, but I'm I'm reminded that um, the uh, there was a change in and the the new coach uh, uh, allowed me to show up at ten o'clock in the morning, where as mostly people cut there at nine because of my classes mm-hmm. that I'd be taking. And uh, he he let that go for one term, and then he said that we, they couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to I had to change my 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 course uh, a little bit, but not much. Uh, and I was going to UCLA, and then in a couple of years we decided to go back to Rice. We being me and my wife, and, uh-huh. and we um, I. I 
enrolled in the pro, in the graduate program at Rice, and you know, four or five years later, I got the PhD. To play football and study and get your PhD at the same time is an incredible accomplishment. I mean, that's just awesome. No, 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 it's not at all. <laughs> uh, really, it isn't. I mean, if you have an interest in in uh, mathematics or interest in uh, car dealership or whatever, if you apply yourself to it, um, and it does have complications that that uh, don't bother you except to uh, excite you because you've got another chance to figure out something, um, then there's no problem. Um, well, let that be a lesson you, to you, yeah. Let that be a lesson for everybody. I, my grandfather was a was a doctor, a very famous doctor in Fort Worth. Uh, got me started on being interested in things that weren't athletic. As Frank said, pursuing a graduate degree, or in his case, a Ph.D., really wasn't that difficult for Frank as he didn't spend a lot of time on the field. In fact, over the course of his first four seasons in the NFL, all with Los Angeles, Frank Ryan started just 11 out of 60 games and only appeared in a total of 40 games. But there was something that the Cleveland Browns saw in his abilities. Ryan had requested a trade from the Rams because every time he got on the field, he feared making a mistake because his coach, Bob Waterfield, had a quick hook. So he asked for a trade and his wish was granted. Yeah, that did happen. <laughs> You know, he he was a wonderful man, and uh, you know he was married to a very famous uh, female. Sure, star. Jane Russell. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm, I'm, everybody who starts and plays professional football has made, has their baggage of problems because you're trying to figure it out and beat the system and all that sort of stuff. And I went through that. Everybody does. He himself. Um, he had a but pretty tight. Yeah, he he didn't have a the the, the greatest uh, record as the Rams coach. I guess right. it was uh, during a tough time for Los Angeles. Right. I'm just trying to think. What was he there? Three years or four years? Two and a half. Was he there. was there for two and a half years. I, and I was I was there for four years, but it was his decision to to, to trade me. You know, to uh, Cleveland. Yeah, did you did you ask for that trade, or did it come as a, a as a surprise to you? No, no, no. I think I had asked to to be traded because I, I thought maybe I wasn't going to get a ch the chance I wanted. Roger Gordon has written several books on the Browns and is currently working on a book about Cleveland, focusing on the teams of the late 1960s, particularly 1965 through 1969. For this book, which won't be released until sometime in 2019, he interviewed and spoke with many former Browns players and reporters. Here's what he had to say about the trade. When he was with the Rams, um, he didn't have terrible statistics, but he backed up uh, he, he backed up Billy Wade in 1960, Zeke Bratkowski in 1961, and he, uh, he threw for almost 2,000 yards in those two seasons combined with 12 touchdowns, 16 interceptions. And I can't, I can't uh, tell you why exactly the Rams traded him, but I know the Browns traded him, obviously, to back up uh, Jim Nanowski. But um, by, uh, by mid-season of, of Ryan's first season with the Browns, which would have been mid-season 1962, Nanowski uh, was out with an injury, 
and Ryan, uh, you know, obviously as the backup, took over. Hey, what kind of quarterback would you say Frank Ryan was? If uh, Explain his game to me if you can. Yeah, well, uh, I interviewed a lot of uh, players from that 64, uh, the late 60s teams, and the receivers, uh, they all told me that Frank Ryan uh, had an, an incredibly uh, great arm. He was a very good long ball thrower. They didn't, you know, necessarily tell me that he had good touch, too. But, you know, I think to be a good long ball thrower, you sort of have to have good touch, too. But the, the big thing that he had that I didn't know until I really started writing this book, I didn't realize that Frank Ryan had that kind of an arm. Um, and I can see that because even when I did those other Browns books, I didn't know until I wrote was writing this book and talking to his teammates that he had that strong of an arm. But apparently he did. He had a very strong arm. Not only was getting out of Los Angeles a blessing for Ryan, being traded to the Browns paid incredible dividends. You see, when he was traded, Paul Brown was still the coach, and one of his assistants was Blanton Collier. Collier replaced Bear Bryant after the 1953 season as the head coach at the University of Kentucky when Bryant left for Texas A&M. Collier coached the Wildcats for eight years and went 41-36-3. He was as solid as they came and was a greatly respected coach. In fact, working under him were three future greats, too, Don Shula, Chuck Knox, and Howard Schnellenberger. But like virtually every coach in the industry, you're hired to be fired. And after eight seasons, he was let go. Two weeks later, though, Paul Brown asked him to join his staff on the newly formed Cleveland Browns of the All-America Football Conference. Ultimately, Collier replaced Brown as the coach of the Browns after the 1962 season. And as the coach of the Browns, Collier took Ryan under his wing and had him change a few things. I saw a video where you were being interviewed, and I believe it was Coach Collier helped you focus on your passes, making them more direct, making them more fine, by having you aim for a more defined spot, like aiming at the at the receiver's chin or right at his chest, could you yeah. explain a yeah. little bit about yeah. that methodology to me? Well, it just focused uh, uh, a little bit more on 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 what you had to do to to get the ball to the to the receiver, and um, I thought it was a very good suggestion that he made, and it's certainly not something I had thought that much about. Because every time you throw a football, you're throwing it towards somebody for some reason, for some distance. But um, to to modify that so that instead of throwing it the hulk of the body, but you throw it at the uh, the helmet or uh, or a hand that's in the air, um, I think causes the, uh, the the completion to be more accurate than it would have been otherwise. And when you when you sort of began to perfect and 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 capitalize on that methodology you're at that point becoming the starter for one of the best NFL franchises of the time the Cleveland Browns you're talking about, yeah and you were basically not no, but, not exactly but you you were sort of following in the footsteps of the great Otto Graham what was it like for you to take over the Cleveland Browns. I didn't take them over. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
Blanton um, was a, a very solid person who wanted to get it done the right way. Um, but he didn't, in my opinion, have uh, have uh, anything special to offer in terms of having a person improve their passing. Uh, but but in my case, uh, I uh, I did a lot of self correction, and uh-huh. and I think that um, that helped a lot, um, uh, making me a better. Pa- player uh, as as the years with the Cleveland continued. With a new philosophy and a lot of practice, and with Collier's permission to call audibles at the line, Ryan's game improved dramatically in 1963, his first full year as a starter. He threw for over 2,000 yards, 25 touchdowns, and 13 interceptions. But it was his 1964 season where he became, perhaps, at the time, the best quarterback in the NFL. He threw for over 2,400 yards and led the league with 25 touchdown passes, and the Browns went 10-3-1. And then they were set to play a heavily favored Baltimore Colts team led by all-world quarterback Johnny Unitas. I've heard over the years um, uh, that they were anywhere from 7, I think, to 17-point favorites. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, they, they had allowed only 229 points that year, which was the, uh, uh, fewest in the league, uh, fewest in the league. And, um, you know, Gary Collins, um, you know, everybody remembers, uh, Joe Namath's guarantee. It seemed like the only people in the whole world that thought the Browns had any chance to win were the Browns themselves and their beat writer for the Plain Dealer, Chuck Eaton. Other than that, nobody thought they had even a chance. Hmm. And Gary Collins, Gary Collins, uh, actually, uh, this would have been five, uh, this would have been, I guess, four years before Joe Namath's famous guarantee. But he was, uh, you know, he was at the pool, I guess, at his hotel or somewhere like that. And uh, the uh, the media was asking him about the game, and and he told them he. They said, well, Gary, you're seven-point underdogs. You think you're going to win the game? And he said, well, what am I going to say? We're going to lose? Uh, So I I come out and I said, while sitting there in the old locker room at League Park, okay, it was at League Park, our practice said, we're going to win big. I'm not even worried about it. And people were laughing. They were calling me cocky kid. But that's the way I felt. That's the way I played football with confidence. So, you know, all the all the, those guys in the Browns. I mean, Jim Kinnicky said that the week leading up to the game was the best he ever saw. He uh, saw them uh, practice. It was he said it was their best practice ever uh, practice week ever. He said everyone was ready to go when we got to the stadium. Blanton did a great job of getting us ready. Uh, they all said that the preparation for the Baltimore uh, game was uh, magnificent. And uh, Ryan said, I think we all felt we had a chance to win. And, uh, you know, um, uh, so the Browns, you know, the Browns had scored only 13 points fewer than the Colts during the regular season. Uh, but the most experts felt it was their defense, that bend but don't break unit that would finally break. And uh, it didn't. And, you know, when it was a uh, 0-0 tie at halftime, you know, most people were probably looking at that 0-0 tie as an upset right there, just to be zero zero at the half. It was an it was already an upset having when it was zero zero at the half. 
I do do recall that we I think we went that both teams were uh, were neither neither team scored in the first half and um I did throw one interception that first half. I didn't have many interceptions that year, but that was one of them. Uh-huh. And um our defense was particularly good against uh you were right, the probably the the, the strongest uh, uh offensive team in in the league. Um, and then we, uh, you know, I, uh, started throwing the long ball on, uh, on the second half. And that, that was the difference. To Nicky, uh, you know, he, he just said, he said the defensive coaches had everybody in position to take care of their jobs. He said, we gave the Colts the short stuff, but tried to keep the long stuff to a minimum. Um, and you know, Bernie Parrish, he, uh, he was sort of like the quarterback of the defense. He was a, he was a cornerback, and you know he he said that he uh, he called the plays in that game. He ignored the coaches' uh, the play calls, and he he called the plays. And he said that the Browns never would have won that game if he wouldn't have called the plays in that game. What what's weird, what's strange is that the next year in '65 against Green Bay, the championship game up at Lambeau Field, Franklin. Said the coaches uh, would uh, he he was told by one of the coaches that our, that uh, he was going to be taken by security out of Lambeau Field if he uh, ignored the coaches again and called the plays, which is weird because they beat Baltimore the year before twenty-seven nothing by Franklin or by uh, uh, Parrish calling the plays, but the coaches did not want him to do it against Green Bay in '65. So, anyways, well, that's interesting. That '64 that '64 game. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, Dick Schaffrath, he, he, he said he remembered at halftime. He said when the defense came in at halftime into the locker room, uh, and he said, I'll never forget this. They were going, I don't care what it takes. They're not scoring, and we'll score. Offense, if you can't score, we're scoring. <laughs> and Schaffrath said, it, Schaffrath said it was a real up positive group, the entire team, actually. And, you know, what Paul Warfield said was uh, – uh, he said the Colts' strategy was problematic for me because they set their defenses uh, by double covering. They they were uh, double coverage on Warfield, and that left Gary Collins uh, basically one-on-one. And uh, the guy who was covering him, I think, was Bobby Boyd, was a lot shorter than Collins. So, you know, Collins had a big advantage uh, against Bobby Boyd. And, you know, I mean, there was uh, – uh, well, Groza actually kicked a field goal for the first points, made it 3 nothing, but then – Collins had a 18 yard pass from uh, Ryan to make it 10 nothing and and uh you know and it just got, it just snowballed I mean uh it was just there for the, it was just there that day it was it was considered one of the biggest upsets you know probably in a long time and you know when it when it became 17 nothing um you know Mike Patika he was uh he was just a fan at that time, but he later covered sports in Cleveland with the Associated Press. He said when it was 17 nothing, he was like, at that point, you know, uh, he was watching on TV. The way the defense was playing, barring many turnovers, and with Brown running the ball and controlling the clock, you really felt the Browns were going to win the game. Hmm. And uh, and then, you know, who, you know, you watch that final touchdown uh, where uh, uh, Collins runs uh, into the uh, – uh, all the fans in the bleachers, right in front of the bleachers section. It was just uh, what's, what's amazing is that there was no there was no parade. The nineteen the last championship parade in Cleveland prior to the Cavaliers 2016 
was the 1948 Indians, the 1964 Browns. There was no parade for them downtown. So wow, why, 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 why is that? I, I don't know. Nobody knows why. It was, they had, it, just, it just wasn't as big a deal, I guess, then as it is now. Even though there was almost 80,000 people there, it's, it's hard to believe that there was no parade, but there was no parade. And another thing that's hard to believe is that the, the game was not televised live in Cleveland. Back then, it was blacked out even if it was sold out 72 hours in advance. So the only people who got to see that game live uh, in Cleveland were the people who drove 75 miles outside of town at some hotel or a bar to watch it. <laughs> then the, I, think they play, I think they played it. I think it was broadcast the next day on tape delay, though. I think it was broadcast the next day on tape delay. But, uh, you know, Ryan and Collins, they, they, had, they had a real connection. They, you know, they first got together in 62. That was both the, their first years with the Browns. Ryan in the middle of the season when he was traded, and Collins was a draft pick. And Ryan, he told me, he said, Gary and I had started developing a connection back in 62 when we both got there. We'd work after practice with Blanton, who was an offensive assistant coach then, working on moves, anticipating things and whatnot, me anticipating where he was going and him understanding when the ball would be there, that sort of stuff. And they both have a mutual respect for one another. And, uh, you know, what's funny is that uh, both of them are sort of, you know, uh, when, when Browns fans think of Gary Collins and Paul Warfield, all they think of is that 64 championship game. It's a shame because both of them, besides that 64 championship game, had great careers. But a lot of Browns fans consider each of them uh, one-hit wonders, even though they weren't. In that game, Ryan went 11 of 18 for 206 yards. Like Frank said, he did throw one interception, but he also connected for three touchdown passes. The first was an 18-yard pass to Collins, whom Gordon just said they worked really well together, and this was their crowning achievement. Now that 18-yard touchdown pass gave the Browns a 10-0 lead. Then Ryan connected with Collins again later in the third quarter on a 42-yard strike to make it 17-0, and then in the fourth quarter, he and Collins hooked up again, this time for a 51-yard touchdown pass, and the Browns smoked the Colts 27-0 to win the 1964 NFL Championship, the last one the Browns won. And while winning in 1964 was the greatest team achievement Ryan experienced during his NFL career, his best year came in 1966 when he threw for a career-high 2,974 yards and a career-high 29 touchdowns. The Browns, though, only went 9-5 and and missed the championship game. And those few years after winning the title in 1964 were quite disappointing, especially the 1965 championship game against Green Bay, a 23-12 loss. Ryan and Collins connected for the Browns' only touchdown of the game, a 17-yard strike in the first quarter, to cut the Packers' lead to 7-6. Later in the quarter, a Lou Groza 24-yard field goal gave the Browns their only lead of the game, 9-7. For the game, Ryan was 8 of 18 for 115 yards and that one touchdown pass. Well, it was, it was disappointing. I mean, every loss is a disappointment. There's not, nothing special about it. Uh, it I, but it was pretty obvious that uh, if, the, if the field had been in better condition, that we might have had the, uh, a different outcome. We started the game and, and uh, immediately scored. Uh, the way we usually did, and um, 
the second or third time we got the ball, I went back to throw it. I, it slipped out of my hand, uh, uh, my throwing hand, when I put my throwing hand back uh, t- just before it goes forward, you know? Uh-huh. There's a little little moment there where you're, you've got the ball back by your ear, and then you've got to thrust it forward. And, I, and when it was by the ear and I started to thrust it forward, it slipped out of my hand because the football was muddy. <laughs> <laughs> So that was that was that 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 was a problem. Yeah. So, so um, we were we were much more uh, pass oriented than was Green Bay. Uh huh. And uh, we didn't have a very good day passing. We did in the beginning before we it was it started to climb up on us. <laughs> um, I think I think I had a touchdown pass in the first time or second time we got the ball, but. Um, yeah, it, those things happen, and, and uh, yep, they not, sure. nothing you can do about it. Yep, Injuries ultimately forced Ryan out of the lineup, and after the 1968 season, he was let go by the Browns and found himself in Washington playing for another legendary coach, Vince Lombardi. But it wasn't his ability on the field that interested Lombardi as much as it was Frank's intellect. Lombardi was intrigued by computers and what analytics could do for the game of football. And for Frank, this is where his second career, his career for what he would do after football began. And, like I just said, it started with breaking down the analytics for Lombardi. He didn't have a mind that uh, would analyze computers and, and understand exactly what was, could be accomplished. But we did talk a lot about it, and he would talk and uh, tell me what he'd like to see is this sort of information gotten very quickly during the course of a game, for example. And um, that that was that was not easy to do. You didn't have those simple computers that um, you have nowadays, where you you can put them in a in an envelope practically, and um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but 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 he was he was uh, he was appreciative of of the uh, information that we would gather uh, very quickly after a game or uh, during a game. It was a, it was a, it was a plus to him. Uh, but I can't remember anything specific that would uh, be uh, interesting. I mean, we're talking about too many years ago. <laughs> but you, you, so you did though. You got to play for Paul Brown. And for yeah. Vince Lombardi, to me, that's yeah. a very unique thing. Two of the greatest coaches in the history right. of the no NFL. Question about it. No uh, question about it. Can you can, can you talk a little bit maybe about their similarities? What made those guys such great coaches? Well, I think they uh, they they knew uh, they knew the sport as it existed then better than most people. And could make judgments about uh, preparing for something that would get the maximum out of preparation, rather than maybe putting a lot of people to sleep or tiring them out. Otherwise, um, uh, it's hard. They and they were very successful in their their, uh, uh, their approach career. to the sport. I would say that um, Paul Brown would have would have. The way he got to where he got was by being very specific and exact, and uh, he kept records of it to, to prove exactness or lack of exact, exactness. 
Hmm. And uh, that was part of uh, of his game. He wanted it done just exactly as he told it. And uh, I think that was uh, that was that's a very good aspect, by the way, of, mm-hmm. of the coach with players. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was he knew that it was important for him to learn and understand uh, not just the nature of football, but the nature of the mindsets of the children, of the people that are playing the game. Wow! So uh, he was uh, he was he was a very intellectual person. Uh, though uh, what he was dealing with was not intellectual in a certain <laughs> sense. I mean, it was it was football. Uh-huh. Um, but um, Vince, uh, he was uh, he had much more uh, um, much larger system of of uh, getting things done. And uh, expectations were very high always around him. Mm-hmm. Very interesting that you got to play for both of them. You have a very unique perspective on that. So as we were talking about before, then you went on to the U.S. House of Representatives and you you instituted basically their computer system. And after that, you went on to Yale and, well, and Rice. Tell me about have, all They that. did not. Here's the point. They didn't have a computer system. When I started, uh huh. And my job, my first big job, was to get it going, to get that. Let's let's get better use out of computers. And as I as I mentioned to you before, uh, it was it was you know early seventies, and, and and computers were not bandied about very much then. Then uh, you know it, it 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 was probably ten or twenty years before the the uh, methods for uh, for computers that are, can be helpful and small at the same time uh, got out into the system. So Ryan went to Rice University, UCLA, earned a Ph.D. in mathematics, designed the computer system for the U.S. House of Representatives. The list goes on and on and on. Academics were very important to his family, and he comes from a long line of some pretty smart people. He was born into a family, now I don't know if it's hereditary, but I think that kind of thing can be hereditary, but he was born into a very uh, intelligent family He uh, that had produced a long line of Yale University alums. Um, he uh, graduated from Rice, Rice University in 58 with a degree in physics. Seven years later, he got his PhD in mathematics from Rice. He was uh, with the U.S. House of Representatives overseeing computer operations. And then he came back to athletics. Uh, uh, he was the athletic director at Yale, but he was also a member of the mathematics faculty there. And he worked in the corporate world for a while uh, uh, for a comp- as president of a company that manufactured low-tech electrical devices. And, I mean, he's, he, you know, I forget which teammate told me but one of his teammates uh, told me that he uh, that Frank had sort of a difficult time coming down to be one of the guys, um, but he he said he was able to do it. He was able to be just one of the guys, even though he one of his teammates told me that he was I forget the word he used weird. He was <laughs> weird. He was strange. He was weird, but weird in the sense that how smart he is. 
Well, um, I was the athletic director at Yale, and um, uh, then a, uh, a, a vice president, and um, I was there about 11 or 12 years. I'm not sure exactly how many, but uh, but I enjoyed it. They're very nice people. It's a, a, excellent, just top top notch. Uh, did did your family? Did your family have a connection with Yale? Yeah, my my, uh, my brother and several uh, cousins uh, went to Yale. Uh, you know, at that time there were no women allowed. The the family had a, a strong Yale connection, and and I had been admitted to Yale. As a matter of fact, when I was making my choice to go to Rice. And um not sure why I decided that, but uh, <laughs> well, I think it was my brother who was uh, two years ahead of me already at Yale, and um, I wanted to sort of be out there on my own. Well, that makes sense. And and Rice is a is this is just a you can't have a better university, or at that time as they called it the institute. Right. Um, it it's, it was small. Much smaller than Yale, but but extraordinarily beautiful with its buildings and things that had happened over the uh, seventy-five or eighty years that uh, preceded my being there. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. Education was would be have been the exact equal of of uh, Yale because they they both were just superb. So you know, I think I wanted to stay in uh, Texas so I could meet my wife. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Here, this is a, a a big, a loaded question. We'll call it a loaded question. What okay. is it about mathematics that you find so stimulating, so interesting, and what kind of opportunities are there for people who want to study mathematics? Well, um, what, what the, let's break this up into a couple of pieces. What's the first one? The first question is, what is it about mathematics that you find so stimulating and interesting? Well, it's because you you uh, much of the time you find you have results that are interesting and unusual and hard to get. There's a, a certain amount of of uh, your your you you have to play by the game of of mathematics. Uh, you can't just sort of wallow around and do what you want to do. Uh, you have to s stick with it. And uh -huh. um, it's pretty tough stuff uh, mentally. It's all mental. No right. question about that. Um, through this process, uh, because people kept the style of mathematics where it should be, uh, mathematics gradually grew. And, you know, the mathematics started you know, two two thousand years ago, and the early days of, of, of uh, I guess you'd call it educational information, but um, mainly over in in, in uh, Europe and and in the uh, places south of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't mm -hmm. know exactly, but but um, it's, uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty phenomenal claim that you can make that it, that mathematics really started 2,000 years ago. 
and there's written materials that have come forward over the, day, the years, over the, uh, I should say, over the, the uh, centuries uh, that uh, contributed to people learning the sport, uh, the uh, the things easier with uh, that prior information being there. So it was, uh, there's just, uh, I don't know where I could tell you to go. You have to uh, have to read something about it to really understand where it's going. And I'm, I'm not sure I can point you towards anything okay. right now. What, I'm, what I'm, kind uh, of opportunities are there for people who want to study mathematics? Is it just something teaching? Well, the people, it... if you're, if you're any good, um, you you are, get employed by universities to um, do their do your mathematics in the in the realm of the university, uh, which is where all the great mathematicians are, more more or less. There are probably a few that would that work independently and whatnot, or with companies uh, that are uh, giving them some some choices under mathematics to do what they want to do. It's hard to say. Um, Anybody who has got an agile mind with uh, mathematics, and I do not have an agile mind now (laughs) because of my my current mental failures. I'm sorry to hear Uh, that. Well, but you know the thing that I do is I keep chomping away at it, and I catch up with everything. It just goes slower. That's uh, so far it's not been really that bad, but that's that's uh, this is the beginning. And while Frank enjoyed a second great career, of course, there's nothing like competing on the field. And those few years he lined up under center as the Cleveland Browns starting quarterback were quite special. There is a website, and it's called The Bleacher Report. It's a sports website. Yeah. And it says that the most underrated player in the history of the National Football League is Frank Ryan. (laughs) How does you that make that? you feel? Because that means that you were a great football player. How does that make you feel? Well, I had uh, three or four pretty good years. There's no question about that. And uh, uh, But for playing 13 years and, and uh, not playing very much to begin with and nor at the end when it was subsiding, um, is testimony that I wasn't one of the really great ones. Uh, I mean, the, the guy who's great, it's a quarterback in Boston. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Good God, he's 40 years old, and he's he, he's just humming. <laughs> Tremendous. But those, but those, he's never been hurt. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it's, well, he had the one year, but let me just say, those three or four years that you were yeah. at the top of the game – in 1963, you threw 25 touchdown passes and only 13 interceptions. In 1964, wow. when you won the championship, you threw 25 touchdown passes. In 1960, and that led the league. In 1965, you threw another 18. And in 1966, you led the league again with 29 touchdown passes. And you threw for some big yardage. You were you were no slouch at quarterback. Well, it was it was uh, it was worthwhile trying to do those things. I, I enjoyed it immensely. I'm I'm sorry that I I didn't um, 
you know, I just I just lost my skills a little bit as I got older, and um, that's but I was had... I was awfully beat up. I had a lot of operations. Let me ask you this final question, Frank. Yeah. What did you love most about playing for the Cleveland Browns and playing in the NFL? <laughs> well, let me think. Uh, at that time, uh, Cleveland had a, a strong prior op, uh, perspective from everybody. They thought it was a great, great uh, team. And uh, had done some, you know, they had won a lot of championships in the older days, the beginning. Um, and uh, they were very, very uh, good fans when we went through that three or four years of having a very successful team. So I think the fact that we provided them, uh, not just my my years there, but but all along the way until recently, they the fans were provided with really top-notch um, football. And uh, that's what they wanted to see. That's what they got. Uh, lately, as you know, uh, Cleveland just hasn't been doing it. Yeah, they, no. They've got no. terrible problems. They do. How does it make you feel to know that you are the last quarterback to lead the Cleveland Browns to an NFL championship? Because that was a long time ago. <laughs> Let's see, 50, 64 was, that's 36 plus. 53 years plus ago. Seven, 53. <laughs> well, uh, I know they've tried real hard. They've had some really good players at a time. But I think we probably, over those 52 or three years, that the, that uh, you'd have to say that our, our top teams were probably, uh, you know, pretty good. And uh, you'd have to accept that as a reason for them winning those seasons. What can I tell you? It's uh, it's 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 hard to, uh, to 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 understand why sometimes you'll have a good season and sometimes you won't. Frank Ryan is the last quarterback to lead the Cleveland Browns to an NFL championship, and that was in 1964. He had, a, he had a good career, and as we said earlier, Bleacher Report says he is the most underrated player in the history of the NFL. We can remember quarterbacks like Otto Graham, Y.A. Tittle, Johnny Unitas, Bart Starr. These are the guys that played in the 60s and the 70s. Very few people, especially people outside of Cleveland, can remember or know Frank Ryan, why is that? Why do you think he is so, I hate to use the term, forgettable? What was it about Frank Ryan's career that just didn't resonate and why people don't remember or know Frank Ryan? You know, I don't know. You know, you, you say the name Y.A. Tittle. You say the name Johnny Unitas. Uh, and then you say the name Frank Ryan. I don't know if it's just the name Frank Ryan isn't, you know, Frank Ryan. It just doesn't sound <laughs> Joe more Smith. Like a, it sounds like a college professor, you know. <laughs> Y.A. Tittle and Johnny Unitas, those those sound like NFL stars. So, I mean, I realize the name. I mean, you know, that could be part of it, Frank Ryan. I don't know. You know, and then I could you could say, well, Jim Brown, you know, there were so many Hall of Famers on those teams. Maybe he just got pushed aside. 
um, even though Brown left after 65. But I don't know, that could be part of it, too. They had Paul Warfield. They had Jim Brown. They had Leroy Kelly. They had Gary Collins, Dick Shaffreth, Gene Hickerson. They had so many stars. But then the, you know, Y.A. Tittle also had a lot of great teammates, and so did Bart Starr, and so did Johnny United. So, you know, I, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe he wasn't one that craved attention. I mean, obviously they didn't have the Internet back then. But maybe, you know, maybe uh, when the in, when the media was interviewing guys after the game, I don't know, maybe he just wasn't, uh, didn't crave attention or, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm just trying to come up with things and, and I don't know. I don't know. It's a tough I, I mean, one. I just don't know. So when we look back at Frank Ryan's career, what should we think of it? How should what what should we remember about Frank Ryan's career? How should we remember Frank Ryan as an NFL quarterback? We we should remember Frank Ryan's career as being, you know, I mean, a very solid career, especially from about sixty, uh, you know, sixty three to, you know, I would say sixty three was his first, I guess, really good year, and then his. His uh, last really good year, I guess, would have, well, 66, you know, from 63 to 66, I think from 63 to 66, that four-year period, um, he he had to have been, he had to have been considered one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL in that four-year period. Now, prior to 63 and after 66, maybe not, but from 63 to 66, he has to, he has to be considered one of the best NFL quarterbacks in the league in that four year period. When you think of the Cleveland Browns and the great quarterbacks they've had, like we just discussed, for whatever reason, Ryan's name just doesn't resonate. The last time the Browns fielded a team that struck fear into anyone was when Bernie Kosar played quarterback. Prior to that, Brian Sype. But neither of them ever played for a championship, let alone win one. But Ryan did. And while what a majority of NFL players did on the field defined who they were or became, perhaps Ryan's choice of moving out of the public eye for public service and the study of mathematics and academia also contributed to his status as one of sports forgotten heroes. But on the field during the five-year stretch of 1963 through 1967, he led the Browns into two championship games, 1-1, won 48 regular season games, lost only 17, and tied another. He threw 117 touchdown passes, more than 23 a season, completed over 51% of his passes, and averaged 2,236 yards a year. This was at a time when throwing for 2,000 yards in a season was a big deal. Ryan had a big arm, and if not for injuries, he might have racked up even more impressive numbers. I'd like to thank Roger Gordon for joining today's podcast. Roger has written several books about the Cleveland Browns, his latest being, So, You Think You're a Cleveland Browns Fan? A book filled with trivia, stats, and more. And his newest book about the Browns of the mid-1960s is due to be released early in 2019. To find all of Roger's work, especially if you're a fan of the Cleveland Browns or a fan of any Cleveland sports team, check out his page on Amazon.com. For more information on Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit SportsFH.com. Follow us on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes, or look for our page on Facebook. Thanks again to today's special guest, Frank Ryan. 
and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.